Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. You have found the Dark Oak. Today we discuss the incredibly mysterious death of Oak de la Plaza. Welcome to the Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of earnings from our Patreon and sponsors to a nonprofit organization related to the first two episodes of the month. And the best part is you get to decide where that money goes. To find out how you can be a part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we will give you all the details. Here at the Dark Oak, we talk about mysteries. And there is no case more mysterious than this one. It's the story of a dead man alone behind a locked door. Authorities find no evidence of an assailant, leading many to wonder if the man's death was the result of a ritualistic suicide. However, there is no potential suicide weapon anywhere near the body. Full of contradictions, the story of Uc de la Plaza's death is quite the head-scratcher. I'm really excited about this one, Cynthia. (laughs) I knew you would be, in fact. Well, so I (laughs) did discover the case and did let Cynthia know, and she just ran with it. She (laughs) said, hey, listen to this one. And I'd never heard of this case before, amazingly. Well, I really, that's one of the things I like about it. It hasn't been covered to death, and it's so mysterious, and it's really hard to figure out what happened. And also it involves a Frenchman. I mean, who doesn't love a Frenchman? I agree. (laughs) Speaking of that, I will say, I do not speak French. What? I know. I know. (laughs) It's hard to believe. But we do enjoy French bread, however. For sure. I enjoy a lot of things French. (laughs) I will say that I did some research and the correct way to pronounce Oog's name is And that is difficult for me to pronounce, but I'm really going to try to honor him and be respectful to him by pronouncing his name correctly. But again, French uh, does not come naturally to me. So please, you know, just understand I'm trying, but I just wanted to put that out there. It's hard. We will try to do all of our Oog fans proud. Right. But it is hard for the American dialect. That's not how we speak. So uh, just know that we are trying and I'm sorry if I, I mess it up. So let me take you to San Francisco on June 1st, 2007. 36-year-old Hugues de la Plaza is a Frenchman with dual U.S. and France citizenship. Now, as we just kind of talked about, I don't have any friends from France, but I really wish I did. Because like Hugues, I really think I would enjoy all things French. And according to all of my research, Hugues was the epitome of charming and confident. And of course, with that accent, I think it would have been hard to not like the guy. In fact, one of his co-workers, Neil, who worked with Oog at Leapfrog, where Oog was a top sound engineer. So, you know, that the brand that makes all those like children's little computers and iPads and things like that. Leapfrog. Yeah, Leapfrog. Yeah. That's where he worked as a sound engineer. Oh, cool. Isn't that cool? Yes. And also, I don't know, I... I have a love-hate relationship with some of those toys. So (laughs) sometimes the sound engineer, I think, may hold some responsibility for some of that aggravation. You know, you do bring up a good point. (laughs) These are all those those toys that 
I don't know. The batteries must have gone dead and we don't have any replacements. That is so, so true. And all the parents in agreement say yes. yes. Well, Oog was a top sound engineer, Leapfrog. And when he first started working with his coworker, Neil, Neil said he didn't really like Oog very much because he was so proud of his French culture. And he believed everything French to be better than anybody else's anything, especially his music. Oh, okay. (laughs) But after the two men worked together for a while, they became good friends. Okay. The two men were also friends with their boss, Mark, who was always entertained when he went out with Oog in American bars because Oog was such a big flirt He would tease women about how to pronounce his unusual name. And um, I can imagine that. Yes. (laughs) No, it's Oog. No, (laughs) Oog. His Frenchness and especially his thick French accent got him a lot of attention with the ladies. And Stephanie, there was a common uh, line, I'll say, that American women like to use when talking to Oog. Do you have any guesses what American women might ask a French man about? Other than French kissing? (laughs) Exactly. French (laughs) kissing. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's the bread and the champagne, but no, probably the French kissing. French kissing. It was a a common topic of conversation at these bars. (laughs) I need to look up a picture of this guy. He's pretty cute. Yeah, he's adorable. The evening before Oog's death, Oog had a date with a woman that he had met online, but he would later tell his friends that the date did not go well. It was not going to be a romantic relationship, but he did hope that they would end up being friends. Okay. Despite the date not being fantastic, Uk wasn't going to let it ruin his evening. So he decided to go to Underground SF, which is a club in San Francisco. Okay. To celebrate a recent promotion he'd gotten at Leapfrog. At the club were his friends Neil, his co-worker. Yep. Marin and Ray. They would all later say that Oog was in a great mood, laughing, smiling, hitting on girls, just being himself. Being himself, being his cute French self. Cute little French self. He did have some drinks and his friends would say that he was a little drunk. In fact, they all were. But that was to be expected. They were young, fun, out celebrating. The group was having a blast. So they ended up staying until closing time. But when they had no choice but to leave the club, they all separated and went to their respective homes. Okay. But not before Oog made plans to go on a motorcycle ride with Neil the following day. As they were parting, Oog jokingly, or maybe not so jokingly, said that he was going to look for a woman to sleep with. And then, <laughs> oh, God, come on, Oog. <laughs> And with that, he headed home alone. Oh, buddy. I love him. I just love him. Talk about some confidence. Because we will learn. It's just like there's there's no like hurt feelings. There's no like yeah, manipulation. It's just I'm going to go find a woman to sleep with. And there you go. <laughs> At 2.06 a.m., a security camera very near Oog's apartment captured an image that his friends and family are convinced was him. It's this really grainy photo. It's actually just pretty much a silhouette. Okay. But his friends and family are positive that this is Oog. Okay. This surveillance camera is from a nearby apartment complex. It is not a continuously running camera. It's motion activated and it takes its photos, you know, every couple of seconds. 
So it's important that you are aware that this is not continuously capturing. I find so this is so we talked about this in the Jennifer Cassie case, too. I find these security cameras to be pretty problematic. And I I agree with you. And there's nothing in any of the research to say that maybe somebody walked by and a glitch in the camera or the fact that the camera was only taking photos every couple seconds missed anything. Okay. But I bring it up just because I just think it's important to know when we're going back and looking at footage and saying, well, I don't see anything. Yeah. There's yeah. a difference between continuously running and oh, sure. motion activated just taking photos yeah. every couple seconds. Sure. But this image of Oog showed a person alone just a few feet from his apartment. Now, from this view, you cannot see his apartment landing or his front door. And there are no other nearby cameras to pick up anything. So this is the one lone camera in the area. Okay. Now, we know that Oog made it home. We know he ate some food because when his body was found, it was the food was still out on the counter. And later, small amounts of the same food would be found in his stomach. Okay. That's pretty good, pretty good confirmation. Right. We know he used his laptop to look at some dating and sex websites and to browse for real estate in Argentina because he was considering buying a property there. The next morning, Uke did not answer his phone when Neil called him regarding meeting up for that motorcycle ride. So Neil ended up taking the ride alone. And he was so bummed that his friend missed out on this ride because it was like such a beautiful day, perfect weather. It was just, you yeah. know, this a great experience. That he said he stopped mid-ride, yelled out curse words at Oog, and then called him to tell him what a magnificent ride he was missing. But Oog didn't answer. Okay. Neil was still so upset the next day that his friend missed out on this that once again he called Oog, and once again he didn't get an answer. So finally, Neil went to Oog's apartment, and when he did, he saw yellow police tape around his friend's building. And it was there that Neil would learn that his dear friend, Hugues de la Plaza, had been killed after their shared night out almost 48 hours prior. Worst nightmare. Absolute worst nightmare. So awful and unbelievable. He'd just been out with this guy. And then, yeah, just one of those things. I can only imagine, like, just shock. Being in shock. Yes. Yes. Truly a nightmare. Terrible. Let me take you back to the previous morning, June 2nd. At 8.20 in the morning, Oog's neighbor Carl opened his front door to collect his morning paper, and when he did, he saw a large pool of blood all over the landing outside of Oog's apartment. Uh-oh. The more he looked, the more he saw. There was also blood on the railing, the hand railing, and on the stairs that led to the sidewalk. Now, I want to give you a visual of this building. There are photos that you can find online, but it's a triplex. So one building, three apartments. Okay. And all three apartments share one landing with their doors literally right beside each other. I mean, just like inches apart. Okay. So two of or the middle unit shares walls with the two other units. And Oogs was one of the end apartments. Okay, got it. Now, obviously, the sight of copious amounts of blood frightened Carl, and he called 911. San Francisco Fire Department paramedic Shannon Stables Day had started like any other San Francisco day. She remembers it being a typical morning with thick fog and crisp air. And a standard 
Saturday morning on duty would normally begin with a trip to a coffee shop for a cup of coffee. And that's where she was when the alarm started. When she got to Oog's apartment, the police tape was already up around the perimeter. Shannon said that as she walked up to the house, the wind started to blow and she could smell the very distinct smell of iron, which in her line of work often signifies blood. Yeah, no good. No. And there was an awful lot of blood. blood. Yeah, this is not looking good. It's not good at all. When Shannon got inside the apartment, she saw that there were bloody handprints on the wall, which turned into smears as Ook had apparently tried to catch himself while falling backwards. Oh my gosh, this is disturbing. It's really, it's really rough. Shannon said that it looked like he had just been grabbing onto anything that he could. She said there was blood everywhere on the sidewalk, on the stairs, on the stoop, on the railing. Everything in the house had blood on it. And you could trace his bloody footsteps throughout the apartment. So blood everywhere. Very bloody crime scene. Gosh, this is like like a movie scene that you're like, that can't be real. It really is. It's like absolutely just this over the top. Over the top. Yeah. Crime scene. So assistant medical examiner Dr. Venus Azar arrived at the scene about an hour and a half after the 911 call. And she examined Ook's body, which was laying in the living room face up. It became clear immediately that Oog had been stabbed at least three times, once in his stomach, once in his chest, and once in his neck. Dr. Hetzar has been to many crime scenes, but she described this one as unusual, like a collection of contradictions starting at the front door. The front door was deadbolted, something that could only be done from inside the apartment, and the back door in the kitchen was also locked. Okay, so he's locked inside of his apartment. Okay. There was a question as to whether there may have been a a sign of a struggle. For instance, the TV was overturned and there was a broken wine glass. And Oog's watch was found broken, almost as if it had been ripped off of his arm and then was laying underneath his body. Oh, that seems suspicious. It's weird for sure. However, the blood evidence did not point to any sign of a struggle. The blood evidence showed that instead of moving quickly, like you would expect to see in the middle of a fight, or even if you had been stabbed and were trying to get help, Ook was moving very slowly. The blood stains on the ground were circular, very rounded. And if Ook had been running, the blood drops would have had more of like an elliptical shape, like a little circle with a tail. Like it. Like it, the, the blood spatter would have been like in motion right. rather than just dropping from straight above. Correct. Correct. But there was none of that. No sign of high velocity movement. Oh, so weird. Very weird. Now, it is highly unusual for someone to be walking around slowly bleeding out after having been stabbed. Like, that's just not typical behavior. If you've been stabbed, you're not just going to be walking slowly around your apartment. Well, right. Yeah. Dr. Azar noticed that Oog's cell phone was on the coffee table, very near his body. Yet it was clear that Oog had never made any attempt to pick it up, to call for help or... Didn't have blood around it or anything? No. There was one of the few places in the apartment that did not have blood on it. So it was very... weird. Right. Very, very clear. He did not even... He wasn't even like moving towards it in an effort to get it. He completely ignored the fact that there was a cell phone laying on the coffee table. Huh. 
There was also no blood trail leading away from Oog's apartment. So as we know, it's not at all uncommon for an assailant to injure themselves during a violent stabbing. You know, the the knife gets slippery. It slips through your hands. Hand wounds are very common in stabbings. In in my experience with stabbings, that's (laughs) definitely my case. For sure. I mean, I can tell you from firsthand. (laughs) But no, but not no joking aside. I mean, yeah, it's very common to have hand wounds. Right. In those kinds of incidents. And especially with a scene like this where there was so much blood everywhere. This assailant should have been covered in blood. Yeah. Well, now there was the blood on the stoop, the blood on the rail, blood on the stairs, blood going into his place. Correct. Nowhere else. Right. All of that blood evidence pointed to coming from Ugg, not coming from a perpetrator or anyone else leaving the apartment. Okay, got it. So there was no evidence that no like another bloody person footprints leaving the scene or anything like that. Nothing. Nothing. It, the only evidence that was found was of Ugg actively bleeding. Wow. In fact, when San Francisco investigators tested all of the evidence, the only blood, hair, or DNA found in the home belonged to Ugg. This is so weird. The only shoe prints in the blood, because remember, there were shoe, bloody shoe prints all over the apartment. They were all Ugg's shoe prints. Okay. In addition to no blood evidence to support an attack, the security camera that we talked about never captured anyone other than the person we believe to be Oog heading towards or leaving from Oog's apartment. So that's why I mentioned that it was not continuously running, but still it was motion activated. We know it captured Oog that night. So we know it was working, at least when Oog walked by earlier. So it is a little strange that nobody else was picked up on that if somebody else was coming and going. Now, I actually tried to find this like answered incredibly clearly, and I never saw anywhere that said it super clearly. But I think it's safe to assume there were other paths you could take to get to Ugg's apartment. Like, for instance, just come from the other direction. Okay. And again, it the camera did not pick up his door. Right. So is there a potential for... Maybe a suspect to just go around the camera. Correct. Lens. Okay. Yes. But it is interesting that nobody else was picked up on this sure. camera. Well, if there was a murderer, then yes. <laughs> it's very frustrating for um, anybody trying to solve the case and very fortunate for the assailant. Absolutely. As so often is with surveillance cameras. I mean, we think they're so helpful, but how many of our cases, they really are not helpful. They're more upsetting than anything. Yeah. It's like we were referring to the the gates, like gated communities. You know, again, I think a lot of this just gives us kind of a false sense of security. Right. Absolutely. Well, and not to mention this particular, I'm telling you, you got to look up the photo of Ugg because I would not know who this person was at all. It literally is just a silhouette. You don't see features. Oh, you, don't you see mean that the, the surveillance photo? The surveillance photo. Okay. Right. So even if it had captured somebody, I don't know what it would have told us. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So how grainy it was, even if there had been something on there, it really wouldn't have pointed to the exact perpetrator. Right. It would have just said, yeah, there's a blob there. Correct. Okay. It would have let us know that a second person at least had walked by. All right. Because now we're still wondering whether this was suicide or homicide. Correct. Correct. Okay. Correct. Got it. There was no evidence of a robbery, which is interesting. There was nothing missing from the apartment. Even the knocked over TV and the broken wine glass, which were, you know, possibly signs of a struggle, they were not clear indicators that a second person was ever in the home. 
as it's possible that the disturbance could have been from Ug himself, yeah, you know, losing his bearings and losing his balance. Items. You said there was already kind of like smear marks on the walls and stuff, so maybe he was disoriented. I mean, he was slowly bleeding out. Right, he had been stabbed three times and th- yeah. really, I mean, three major yeah injuries. So absolutely, that makes sense. So based on this evidence, investigators began to wonder if perhaps Ug's death was a very bizarre suicide. There was one major problem with this theory, however. There was no obvious murder weapon in the house, which is kind of important. Oh, well, there was blood outside. Could the injury have happened outside? Well, maybe, but still, even if he... But there was nothing immediately outside either. No, Cor- like... Correct. And assuming because it was a stab wound, it would be some kind of knife? A knife. Is that what a they're blade. looking for? A correct. blade of some kind. Okay. So there was no weapon near his body. There were two kitchen knives in the apartment, but they were in the kitchen and they were both clean. Now, these knives were evaluated and it was found that they did have the potential to cause these wounds. Okay. They were not inconsistent with having caused them. However, there was no blood on them. They were literally clean knives found in his kitchen. Um, Well, I don't think if he had done that to himself and was bleeding out, he would be able to clean knives. I mean, (laughs) you're not the only person who feels that way, but not everybody feels that same way. Okay. Okay, so. And why would you do that? Well, good question. But you bring up a good point. This this presents a problem for a suicide theory, right? Yes. No no murder or suicide weapon? Yes. So investigators offered the idea that after inflicting these horrific wounds on himself, Ugg may have washed the knife. But again, let me remind you and everybody else, there is blood everywhere. So I don't know why one would care to clean a knife that they use to stab themselves as they are actively bleeding out, dying. Why would you clean the knife? That doesn't make any sense. There's blood all over your apartment. Why would you care about the knife? You wouldn't. That's the answer. You'd, you wouldn't. It no. doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. But if you want to look at a death and say it may have been suicide by stabbing and you don't have a knife nearby, you have to come up with something, right? There has to be some kind of theory as to what happened to this knife. So that was one of the theories that he just possibly washed it. Yeah, I'm not buying the suicide thing so far. Okay, well, a lot of people have a hard time accepting the idea that Oog would have stabbed himself three times and then washed the knife. And also, I mean, not that anyone who is suicidal has signs of it. I mean, sometimes it is a surprise, but this guy really doesn't seem like somebody that I would suspect of suicide. He does not seem high risk at all. No. Like you said, a lot of times people try to hide, you know, what they're really going through. But there are indicators. And even oftentimes, I think looking back on the matter in hindsight, you can be like, okay, I didn't notice it then. But now looking back, I can see these warning signs. Nobody has ever said that of Oog. But as you can imagine, a lot of people, you know, really struggle with this washing the knife theory. So ludicrous. <laughs> thank you. It is. It's absolutely ludicrous, especially if he's actively bleeding. How could he even get the knives clean? I don't know. None of that makes any sense. I mean, there are some boys in my house who can't get <laughs> silverware clean on a good day. Yes. Like, <laughs> I, I just have a hard time. Now, imagining I imagine, I don't know, but the, at least the person in my mind that Ug is, he would be able to keep a pretty spotless place. Yeah. But no, I mean, this th- that's ludicrous. Absolutely. So the investigators suggested a uh, another possible theory of what 
Oog may have done with the weapon, and that is that he probably just hid it. He just hid the weapon. Now, again, this weapon has never been found in the almost 17 years since Oog's death. So if he did hide it, he must have hid it really well. But okay, why? Why would you stab yourself and then hide the weapon? Yes. Why would you do that? I don't know. Now, for anyone who thinks that he did not hide this knife inside the apartment, which personally, I don't think he hid the knife inside the apartment. Well, I assume within the last 17 years, someone else has been in the apartment and possibly moved furniture and things. So I imagine if it was in there, it would have been found. One would think. So perhaps, Stephanie, maybe he just hid it outside or maybe he threw the knife out the window or perhaps he went outside and buried the knife. Wait, are these actual theories? These are actual suggestions offered by investigators as to what may have happened with the weapon. Now, I will tell you what is convenient about hiding or burying the knife outside is it could potentially explain that blood on the stoop, the railing, the stairs, the sidewalk, because now it takes Oog outside while bleeding. Yeah, but the blood trail doesn't lead anywhere past the sidewalk, right? Right. And there's no bloody knife outside laying on the stoop or the sidewalk. Right. Are or there any freshly dug knife-sized holes? Not that I know of. No one's found a bloody knife right outside of his apartment. And I have to assume the investigators, you know, at least walked around the building just taking a look. I, I mean, would hope. But those are suggestions that were made. Okay. Well, seems slightly far-fetched, but okay, let's see what else you got. All right. Well, technically, I guess we have a potential how, right? How this happened? No. So, no, no, not according to me. None of this makes any sense. Well, just pretend. <laughs> just pretend. For okay. a second that we have and a remind potential me, how. Remind me again. So we had three stab wounds. Remind me again where they are. Stomach. Okay. Chest. Okay. And neck. Okay, so he stabbed himself all these three places. Each one of these is like a very vulnerable, very dangerous spot to be stabbed. We're not talking about a cut on the arm. We're talking about being stabbed in the stomach, the chest, and the neck. Yikes. Okay, I don't know. That sounds really brutal. For sure. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, well, we have our potential how, even if Stephanie doesn't agree with that. No. But no. we need a why. Yeah. So investigators thought that perhaps Ugg had taken some type of psychotic drug at the club or on his way home from the club. Because remember, he walked home. Okay. And so he was so incredibly high and drunk that when he got home, he repeatedly stabbed himself. Oh, but then hid the stabbing weapon. Apparently, when you are high on psychedelic drugs and alcohol, you forget all about self-preservation, but then also don't want to take accountability. You got it. You nailed it. Okay. All right. Well, now I know. When investigators were interviewing the neighbors, which, of course, they did immediately, one couple reported that they were awakened by something outside their window around 2.38 a.m. So remember, he got home at like 206. Yeah. So he was picked up on that camera. And they said it sounded like someone opened a door really loudly. And then a few minutes later, they heard the door open and shut again. And the sound of what sounded like someone running down the stairs. And then they heard what sounded like someone sitting down and falling over like a thud. Okay, that's a very detailed description of what you heard at 2.30 in the morning. Do you find that strange? I did, but... 
I just assumed that maybe these types of noises were not unusual. First of all, I want you to look at the picture of the front of the apartment because I'm telling you the doors are literally right next to each other. It almost looks like a row of windows, only it's doors. They are right next to each other. Okay. I don't know the layout of all three units on the inside, but it is very possible because of the proximity. Maybe noise was often picked up. And then we know that Oog is a partier. Yeah. We know that. Uh, We know he had lots of dates. I only assume that lots of people were coming and going from his place. And it's a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. It may not be that unusual. I have to assume it's not that unusual to hear noise. In fact, they said it was enough for them to remember the next morning when they were being questioned. Yeah. But it wasn't enough to cause concern in the moment. Okay. All right. I've lived in apartments. I just knew this is my noisy neighbor. Yeah. So. So an autopsy was performed on Oog and Dr. Azar performed this autopsy and the autopsy revealed a puncture in the abdomen, a puncture in the chest and a deep vertical wound in the left side of Oog's neck, which severed major blood vessels and punctured his left lung. Okay, you're telling me he did that to himself. I'm saying that investigators believe it's a possibility. Don't believe that. In Dr. Azar's expert opinion, these wounds absolutely could have been self-inflicted. Okay. I mean, you got to be real determined. Really determined. Oog was right-handed. The wound on his neck went from right to left and downward. The wound on his chest went from right to left and downward. And the wound in the abdomen went straight in. Okay. There were also wounds that could have been defensive wounds, such as a superficial sharp force injury on the left side of his forehead and a two inch bruise on the front of his right forearm. This is interesting. The toxicology report came back clean. There were no drugs in his system. Oh, none of these these supposed psychedelic drugs that just made him suicidal. Correct. There were none. So that theory goes out the door. So now we're back to we have no motive. Yeah. Oog's matter of death was ruled undetermined. Yeah. So to be clear, it was not ruled a suicide officially. Okay. But people get very upset that it wasn't ruled homicide right off the bat because to many people, including his friends and family and a lot of, you know, listeners and uh, just true crime followers, like, How could this be anything other than a homicide? Well, an undetermined, too, it could also be possibly accidental. But there's no way these stab wounds were accidental. It's not like he fell on the knife and then accidentally fell on it again. Correct. You know what I'm saying? This is not like accidental. Correct. So either he did it to himself or someone did it to him. Correct. Absolutely. Melissa Nix, a journalist on the East Coast, was a former girlfriend of Oog. But after their relationship ended, they remained friends. And Melissa said that she was originally drawn to Oog because she found him very handsome (laughs) and she liked his French accent. I thought you were going to say French kissing. (laughs) I'm pretty sure she liked that, too. So when she saw him at a party, she walked right over and introduced introduced herself and then asked him out. And they ended up dating for four years. Oh, Melissa would say that Oog was the love of her life. Oh, now I'm not sure how Melissa learned of Oog's death, but I assume that mutual friends contacted her because she found out pretty much immediately 
and she got right on a plane, flew to San Francisco. Unbelievably, she also learned that no one from the San Francisco Police Department had attempted to contact Hugues parents. What? Francois and Marielle, who lived in France. I'm sorry, what? Nobody contacted them. And I don't know the why. I don't know the why. But obviously, Melissa knew they needed to be made aware of their only child's death. So she was the one who had to make that call. (gasps) Oh, that's horrible. It's awful. She said the call woke them up at four in the morning. And Francois, Oog's father, was... Really excited to hear from her. Hi, Melissa. What What's causing you to call? Even at four o'clock in the morning, he was like Aww. friendly and sweet to her. And as you can imagine, you know, this call was just absolutely excruciating for all of them. Oog was the only child. He'd always been very close with his parents. He'd called them from the States at least once a week. He emailed them. He sent them letters. I mean, this was just a horrific loss. Four days after Oog's death, Antonio Casillas a 30-year veteran of the San Francisco Police Department who has led the investigation since he first arrived at the scene, interviewed Melissa. This conversation was recorded. Now, during this interview, Melissa allegedly told Casillas that Oog was interested in Japanese culture and that he enjoyed samurai movies. And according to the medical examiner, Dr. Azar, who was permitted to listen to this recorded conversation, Melissa asked if Oog's death was Hari Kiri. So do you know what that is? Is it like Saboku, like Japanese suicide? It is. So Hari Kiri is a ritual suicide by disembowelment with a sword. And it's normally done when a person finds themselves disgraced or under a sentence of death. Right. According to Casillas, it was during this interview four days after Oog's death, that Melissa would start the ball rolling on the theory that Oog had killed himself. According to Casillas, it wasn't until this conversation where Melissa allegedly brought the idea up that the idea of suicide was ever even contemplated. Oh, okay. But she wasn't insinuating that he was suicidal. Apparently she asked. Okay. Was it? Yeah. Harikiri. I mean, I don't know. You hear somebody stabbed in the stomach. I don't know. Okay. All but right. if he had a fascination with a certain type of, I, I mean, I'm I'm not into samurai movies, um, but I guess if that's like a popular idea or something and you, you know, are a fan, I guess maybe that's what prompted her to ask. Actually, she was, she was later asked why she would bring this idea of suicide up. And she said, she said that the questions she was being asked by Casillas were very leading. So leaded her towards suicide, the thought of potential suicide. So he was asking questions like, uh, was he depressed? Did he do drugs? Was he, you know. Okay. Which feeling sad. Which was natural line of questioning. I mean, I don't know that that was too far reaching. But yeah, was that was that kind of implanted? Right. So she says they made her think it was potential suicide. Okay. They say. She was he the one that suggested them suicide. think it was potential suicide. And she almost kind of confirmed it with like this idea of this Japanese suicide. Okay. As you mentioned earlier, from the outside looking in, Oog did not seem to be someone who was high risk. He had money in the bank. He had friends. He had lots of girlfriends. <laughs> he was looking to buy property in another country. He seemed to really enjoy life. He'd just gotten this promotion. And again, we never really know what's going on with someone, but 
he just didn't fit the profile at that time for someone who might be high risk. Right. Especially looking at that property in Argentina. Right. It, it just doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to fit at all, in my opinion. When Uke's father, Francois, heard the direction the investigation was taking, so once the rumors of suicide started being thrown around, he hired a private investigator named John Murphy. And John began working on this case eight days after Uke's death, so pretty quickly. And John had 25 years of private investigator experience, and he was very familiar with the streets of San Francisco. And he felt that Uge's death probably had more to do with meeting some not-so-savory people while he was walking home alone from the club in the middle of the night than it did with suicide. John said that after 2 a.m., the kind of people who were out on the streets are generally up to no good. That reminds me of something my dad used to always say. Nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> Anytime I wanted to like stay out late, nothing yeah. good happens after midnight. So are you going to use that on your kids? Uh, uh, well, I'm, ki- I'm kind of cool with my oldest, who's 19. So, I'm Cynthia's pretty cool. a cool mom. I'm pretty cool. <laughs> now, what he doesn't know is I can't fall asleep till he's in and safe and yes. all of that. But, you know, I remember being young and he's a good kid, too. He's not like out of the club. I can say that. If he were out of the club, boy, you better get yourself home. <laughs> Nothing good happens after midnight. John Murphy believes that after arriving home in the early morning hours and after eating and using his computer, something prompted Oog to open his front door and walk outside. So John's theory is that Oog never made it past the first landing, which makes sense because that's kind of where the blood is where the blood was. It was yeah. like, you know, down onto the sidewalk a little bit. Well, this is the whole like planting of the knife, like burying the knife. I'm like, yeah, but the blood trail didn't lead to the garden. I guess he just buried it right there in the cement steps and somehow re-cemented them. Okay, great. Good theory. I mean, listen, if we're throwing out bizarre ideas here. (laughs) And I love throwing out the window. Well, then wouldn't you have found it out the window? As well as a a blood trail leading to wherever it landed? Like, yes. No sense. I don't know. I don't know. Well, John believes that Ugg was stabbed in the abdomen while he was outside for whatever reason. I haven't read anything that said that he was a smoker, but I thought, well, maybe he just like stepped out to have a cigarette in, in the event that he was. So, you know, or who knows why. Um, but John's theory is that Ugg stepped outside and then was stabbed in the abdomen, causing him to either fall forward or like lean forward. And then he was stabbed two more times, once in his chest and once in his neck. So John and Francois believe that the attacker never made it inside Ugg's apartment. But instead, after being attacked, Ugg did retreat back into his apartment and then locked the door behind him for safety. And this explains why there's blood outside and why Ugg is locked inside with no assailant you know, no evidence of an assailant ever coming in. But also, he didn't call for help. He did not call for help. You know, I mean, to play devil's advocate on the other side now, I mean, was he literally that disoriented that he didn't remember where his phone was? He, But it was in plain sight. It was. He did not call for help. I can confirm that. Maybe there's a why. Maybe there's a why not. But there's another big question. And that is, who would want to kill Oog? Such a fun, charismatic, charming, likable guy. And that may be the answer right there. According to his friends, Oog's dating life may have been a motive. According to one of his best friends, Christoph Schumann, it did not matter to Oog 
If a woman had a husband or a boyfriend, that would not stop Oog from pursuing her for sex. Kristoff even said that Oog would probably sleep with Kristoff's girlfriend. Oh, no. Oh, Oog, no, buddy. No. He did. And he followed it up by saying that kind of stuff really just didn't mean anything to him at all. So he wasn't trying to be mean about it. He wasn't being nasty. He just, that wasn't important to him. Boundaries just weren't a big deal. I guess not. So it's often said that there are two things people are willing to kill over. Money and and sex. sex. And in the case of Oog, we have plenty of sex. There was no shortage of potentially jealous lovers or angry boyfriends or husbands. Or maybe whoever he was trying to pick up to have sex with him that night. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, no. So Francois was really unhappy with the San Francisco Police Department. So he asked French authorities for help, and they were able to get involved in the case under a rare treaty, given the fact that Hugues had dual citizenship. So French authorities came in, and they interrogated more than 50 people comprised of witnesses and friends. They reviewed all of the San Francisco PD's investigation materials, and they retested all of the evidence. And guess what? They found unknown DNA on Oog's watch band. Yes, I knew that was suspicious. Mm-hmm. Now remember, Oog's watch was found broken as if it had been ripped off his arm, laying underneath his body. But under his body, that's weird. It is a little weird. Yeah. Francois explained that Oog always wore his watch on his right arm. So he thinks that maybe Oog tried to protect himself with that arm potentially getting the attacker's DNA on the watch. Okay. And then because of the potential hit or slice or altercation, the watch broke and fell off. And I guess just landed underneath. So it was just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. The French authorities worked on this case for nine months and then published their findings in a 2000 page report. And this report revealed a 100% positive conclusion that Oog died by homicide. Okay. San Francisco police say that their official position has always been that Oog's death was treated as a homicide. Casillas explained that the week Oog died, there were five death cases that were assigned to the homicide detail for investigation, and he personally got three of the five cases assigned to him. He said there's always going to have to be a balancing act between the demands of the situation and the resources available, which is sad. But also we are human. It's reality. And we can only do what we can do. Tell that to a grieving family. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, however. Right. That's that's a tough pill to swallow. Right. Oog's friends and family did not give up. In 2008, Melissa, his ex-girlfriend, asked the Office of Citizens Complaints to conduct their own independent investigation. And 17 months later, the OCC report said that there was a failure. The report found no misconduct, but did find that there was a lack of resources and there had been a lack of cooperation between the medical examiner, the crime lab, and the San Francisco Police Department homicide detectives. In February 2009, Ook's family offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. And that same year, they also held a vigil in honor of Ook. In August 2009, San Francisco got a new police chief, George Gascon. Chief Gascon made 
Oog's case a top priority and even asked the Los Angeles Police Department to evaluate the case. Wow. Mm-hmm. Gascon then met with Uke's parents and told them that the San Francisco Police Department had previously quietly commissioned an outside review of the case. And an independent medical examiner from Marion County also had concluded that Oog's death was a homicide. Whoa. That's crazy, right? Yeah. They'd quietly commissioned another department to come in and that department disagreed with them. And th- but then they hid the results. It wasn't until Chief Gascon <gasps> became chief and met with Oog's parents that they learned about this. Oh, that's wicked. Isn't that crazy? In reviewing the evidence, this medical examiner who'd done this private review found evidence that Oog was attacked. On the outside wall of the apartment, adjacent to the staircase, there was blood consistent with cast off from the arm movements of a knife going oh, in and out. Oh, shoot. He also observed uh, an abrasion on the palm of Oog's right hand that could have been evidence of a defensive wound. Okay. This doctor also found that the blood loss from the neck wound was so severe that Oog would have died in less than two minutes. This would explain why he did not call for help. He did not have time. Okay. Uh... And also would not have been able to bury a knife. For sure not able to bury a knife. For sure not able to throw it out the window. Wow. So he was stabbed and literally had just enough time to come into his apartment. It was probably just stumbling just around. Just stumbling around and just yeah. landed where he landed. Yeah. So now we have two outside reviews labeling Oog's death as a homicide. But according to the official report by Dr. Azar... The manner of death remains undetermined. So she was asked, what would cause her to change her ruling to homicide? And here's what she said. She said, somebody that steps forward and says, I know what happened. Someone told me they stabbed him or this was a drug deal gone bad or this was a wife's husband. Someone knows something. That's what would cause her to change her ruling. Well, I don't think that's how that's supposed to work. (laughs) They're not supposed to do the job for you. Yeah. I don't think that's how that works. Right. I mean, wouldn't it be great if every single case they were like, here's what happened. Okay. (laughs) Now you can rule it as a homicide. Yeah, exactly. And listen, I don't pretend to be a medical examiner. Like, I'm sure this woman is just brilliant and and wonderful at all things medical examinery. I don't pretend to know any more than these law enforcement agents do. But to me, the idea that this could have been a suicide, it just makes no sense. I mean, not only was he not high risk, but what about all the totally bizarre things like a stabbing with no weapon? This just it wasn't a suicide scene. There was no note. There was no apparent motive. No, no. His behavior afterwards is not that of a suicide. No. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the classifications of death. It's natural, which this obviously wasn't a natural death. Accident, which again, Right. Obviously not. No. Suicide, homicide, undetermined, which is what his was ruled, and yeah. pending. Right. In my un non-expert opinion, the only appropriate ruling would have been homicide. Well, wait, we ruled out accident. We ruled out suicide because I just don't think that's possible. Right. It's not natural. It was definitely not natural. So it has to be homicide. Homicide, undetermined, or pending, which... 
homicide. I mean, come on. I feel like any other medical examiner would have would have labeled this a homicide just yes. like straight off the bat. Uh, yeah. I wonder what her motive was for labeling it as unknown. I don't know. I don't know. Because I, I've tried to think about that. Was the fact that there was no evidence of an assailant really that powerful to her that she just absolutely could not see the potential that maybe there was an assailant that just got really lucky? Well, tell me about this unknown DNA on the watch. We don't know anything else about it. Just that okay. there was an unknown DNA found that previously hadn't been found. Okay. And they're still looking into the case? The case is still open? So the case is still open. And if you have any information, please call the San Francisco Police Department anonymous tip line at 415-575-4444. And at this point, the San Francisco ruling is still undetermined. Undetermined. On a cause of death. according to Dr. Azar, will remain that way until somebody comes forward and tells her exactly what happened. <laughs> Okay, so can the murderer please just go and tell her, by the way, it was a murder. Right. And then we can all move forward. Right. That would be really helpful. Right. Thank you. And so to clarify, a lot of people will like, oh, the, it, it, it was a lot of people mistake this as having been ruled a suicide. And it wasn't, to be clear. It was not ruled a suicide. Yeah, but what else could it? But but really, because of the nature of the case, the only thing it could have been outside of homicide would have been a suicide. Right. So the implication right. is that it could have been a suicide. Right. So no, it wasn't ruled a suicide, but again, it clearly wasn't natural and it clearly wasn't an accident. Right. So if you're not willing to go on a limb and say it's a homicide, that means you're thinking it could be suicide. And as a loved one, if you lost a loved one due to homicide, but you could not get just even that ruling made. Yeah. You know, if they left it open ended as to, oh, well, she may have killed herself. You know, that would be really hurtful, I think, and hard. Yeah. So I am impressed with the fact that they looked at everything. Like, I mean, they do have a scenario here where they say, but there's no evidence of an assailant running and there's nobody on the on the camera and there's no this or that. But I think you can rule out the suicide idea pretty quickly when you take into consideration like okay there is no weapon he obviously didn't wash it no. even when we tested it like microscopically there's no evidence of blood on it well and even that they didn't notice the severity of the wounds you know because i think the idea is that he would have bled out so quickly right there would have eliminated, you know, a lot of these other possibilities of him hiding the knife and things like right. that. I think the big thing that made them start thinking suicide is the fact that there was the phone very apparent no, near it's true. where his body is and he didn't reach out for it. But again, if you're bleeding out and you're just like, grappling to stay upright like do you even notice where the phone is i mean i can't tell you how many times a day i have no idea where my phone is yeah and it's laying right in front of me or beside me or whatever yeah. so did he know off the top of his head oh i have to go inside and make it to the coffee table to pick up right. my phone i i mean and it, and it, you're just in shock absolutely i mean can you imagine just going outside for a cigarette or who knows what and yeah. being stabbed you don't even know anybody's there, know yeah. why, and yeah. then you're inside and you're dead before you even have time to think. This is still a, a pretty darn crazy case. I it's mean, so crazy. I think you and I have figured out it's probably a homicide. But again, 
who, how, why. Right. So many questions. I do. I do think that the theory that he just went outside and somebody came up and saw their opportunity and stabbed him. If this was like an a angry husband of an ex-lover or a former lover or something, um, you know, maybe they'd watch him for a little bit. S- say he was a smoker. I keep bringing that up because I have heard I haven't read anything that said he was definitely a smoker or that there was evidence that he'd smoked outside. But I have heard that said several times. Maybe he stepped outside for a cigarette. Okay. So I'm assuming he was a smoker. But, you know, maybe they knew that. Yeah. So maybe they knew that he was likely to step outside and they were just laying in wait. I mean, I don't know. It's pretty extreme, I guess. But I don't know. This whole case is extreme, though. Well, and I guess murder is always extreme. Yeah. As is suicide. So it's just, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Wow. So that's the story of Hugues de la Plaza. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Well, let's give us a little (laughs) pick-me-up. Let's do a little Branch of Hope, shall we? So our Branch of Hope report for February of 2024 We've got two options. We have the National Trust for Historic Preservation uh, presented to you in our 16th Street bombing case. We also have the Jennifer Cassie Criminal Justice Endowed Scholarship at the University of Central Florida covered in our Jennifer Cassie case. They were released on the first two weeks of the month of February. And all we need you to do, listen to those episodes, find out which one of those two nonprofits you love the most, head to either our Twitter page or our Facebook page and let us know in our online poll which of those organizations you would like our money to go to. A portion of the proceeds from our Patreons and sponsors will go directly to those nonprofit organizations uh, with the percentages that are determined by your vote. There are no gimmicks. We are simply a podcast leading through words and actions, and we want to make sure that your voice is heard. Please head to thedarkoak.com and click on the link for Branch of Hope if you want more information about our charitable giving. If you loved this episode, love us or love the Branch of Hope, please like and subscribe and tell someone. We are doing good work and we need you to help spread the good word. Forward this episode to a friend who might like it. You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com. Once you're there at Patreon, just look up the Dark Oak. We have all kinds of fun stuff going on over there. Extra content, uh, goodies, uh, a monthly live with Stephanie and I where you get to talk to us and we answer your questions right there live. Super fun. So check us out at Patreon. And be sure to follow us to our next episode where we will cover the mysterious murder of Lindsay Buziak. It's a good one. It's, <laughs> it's, oh, I don't even know. I don't even know how to put words. It's, you'll see. Thanks for listening, Shiver Seekers. You guys rock. Bye. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our shiver-seeking listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Crete for our amazing music.